please take out your Bibles and turn not to the book of Genesis, not to the front of your Bible, but more toward the back. Turn to John 13. We're going to look at verses 34 through 35 this morning, page 900 in the Pew Bible. We are doing something a little bit differently today. Our regular sermon diet is and should be a sequential exposition of books of the Bible. In other words, we, we take a book of the Bible uh, every Sunday, we preach through a passage of it, and then we come back the following week and we pick up right where we left off. Uh, that is a function of our belief in the nature of God's Word. If God's Word is actually His Word, if it's living and active, if it's able to make you wise for salvation, if faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word then why would we do anything but preach through that word? In fact, when someone asks me about a church or how to know if a church is good or not, one of the first things I'll tell them to do is go and check the sermon page. You can tell a fair amount about a church just by the sermon series. Are they books of the Bible or are they some catchy, cool-sounding series about relationships or a bunch of random things that the pastors think will be relevant and hip? Uh, it was one series somewhere recently that took its theme from various hit pop songs and began each sermon by playing the song. I don't have to tell you what I think about that. Um, it's the reading. It's the explanation. It's the application of God's word. Is that the regular diet of preaching? That's what it must and should be. But, <laughs> you knew a but was coming. All that, of course, is an introduction to the fact that we are going to actually do a short topical series. We finished the book of Philippians before Christmas, and so far we've been working through the book of Genesis. Today we're going to hit pause on the book of Genesis for a few weeks to tackle more intentionally an important topic. So let's begin by talking about shacking up. Shacking up. Didn't expect that, did you, this morning? Do you know what that is? You know that term, right? or cohabitation. It is today increasingly the norm, and I'd be considered somewhat backwards for even suggesting that it's wrong. What is it? It's when two romantically involved people move in together without getting married. I read one study this week that said 70% of women in their early 30s either have or are currently cohabitating, and that over two-thirds of new marriages take place between people who have lived together first. Why in the world am I talking about this? Because it's a great illustration of what I want to discuss today. I want to use the current phenomenon of cohabitation as an illustration of how many Christians today treat the church. There was an article on cohabitation in The Atlantic, a magazine, a few years back. And its very first line is this. Marriage is a big commitment. And over the course of the article... The author goes on to try and figure out why so many more people are cohabitating today. Is it fear of divorce? Is it a desire for a trial run? Is it because of relaxed sexual mores? Uh, but more and more people are cohabitating, even in light of the fact that marriage has significant measurable benefits that cohabitation does not. And there are all kinds of studies confirming this. So why is marriage healthier? And why then, in light of that fact... Do more and more people still pursue cohabitation when it is not as healthy? And the author of this article just can't seem to figure out why it is, but at one point towards the end theorizes that it's perhaps because of the level of commitment that comes from marriage. Keep that word in mind. Last week, we talked about covenant. 
This week, we are going to talk about covenant. Last week was about God's covenant with us. This week is about our covenant with one another. Because this week, we are going to talk about church membership. We're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. I believe, Mike and I believe, that Jesus expects every Christian to be a committed member of a local church. I also believe that not all of you believe that. Uh, But we are convinced that church membership is both biblical and important. So I want to take a few minutes to try and explain why. So I wonder if you think it's important for Christians to be member of a local church. If not, do you know why not? If you do, well, then do you know why? And if you do and you're not a member of a church here or elsewhere, then why not? So what I'm going to attempt to do is make a brief case for church membership from Scripture. I want to show you that it is biblical, that it is beneficial, and that it is beautiful. And there are a couple of classic ways that people generally do this from Scripture. I'm going to try a different approach. I want to run with our conversation from last week on covenant, and I want to make the case that covenant implies church membership. But I even want to get there from a strange point. You're probably wondering how any of what I have just said has anything to do with John chapter 13. Good. My goal is to convince you that church membership is biblical from these two simple verses that you have probably never considered as church membership verses. I've got five points this morning, and we're going to work through these, and I've structured them as sort of a logical argument. I'm going to make my case by progressing from one point to the next. And so first and foundational, we're going to see that Christ commands love. But he commands a specific kind of love. Number two, we're going to see that he commands love as he loves. Love like his own love. And then three, we're going to see, well, how does he love us? We're going to see that Christ loves us through covenant. And what does Christ do to us, through us, through covenant? Four, we're going to see that Christ commits to us through covenant. Covenant. There's the word. There's the word commit. And so, in conclusion, number five, for then to love like Christ, Christians must commit through covenant. Right, so that's the argument that I'm going to try to make from John chapter 13. If you're a member of the church, you're not off the hook. This is still about you. We're going to talk about membership, the foundation of it this week. We're going to do something next week. We're going to come back and then look in two weeks at what, what are the... the What is entailed in church membership? What does it mean to be covenant together? What are we then called and required to do for one another? I want to show you that church membership is a lot more significant than I think that most of us believe that it is. Let's see if I can do that from John chapter 13. So we're just reading two verses, short and sweet. I'm going to read for you John 13 verses 34 and 35. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, Christ tells us that apart from him, apart from you, we can do nothing. Father, apart from you, I cannot preach your word. 
Apart from you, we cannot even hear or understand your word. So we ask now for your help. Help the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, this is a topic potentially that is somewhat sensitive to many. Father, I pray uh, that you would protect me from being obnoxious and annoying. And I pray that your word would be front and center. And I pray that your word would be clear. And I pray that uh, my words would be a reflection of what your word says. I pray that you would show us the beauty of covenant. And I pray that you would show us the beauty of your covenant commitment to us. And then convince us of the great beauty of brothers and sisters in Christ uh, covenantally committing to one another in the membership of a local church. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, do that. I pray that you would help me do that. I pray that you would show all of us how good it is to dwell together in unity, how good it is to commit to one another, uh, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Uh, Father, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start with the command. I love this verse because I love how this verse connects love and law. Everyone today is desperately trying to divorce love and law. Not Jesus. A new commandment I give to you. Law. What is that law? Love. Right? Christ commands love. And this is hopefully obvious, but it's going to be foundational to everything that follows. So we've got to make sure that we understand this. Everyone loves love these days. No one would argue with the idea that love is good. But the world's definition of love is quite different than Christ's definition of love. And we'll see that in a bit. But first, I want to show you that the people of God are characterized by love because their God is characterized by love. And 1 John is the classic place to go here. This is what we just read. Let's go back to it. I want to work through what we just read for a couple of minutes. Turn back to 1 John 4, page 1023. John, 1 John, right, the epistle from John, the same author of the gospel that we just read, the gospel of John. And John is all about love. Look at 1 John 4. We're just going to, I'm going to read for you again, just verses 7 through 12. We can do a whole sermon on this. In fact, we have. Uh, go listen to it. So listen for love. I want you to pay attention to love in these few short verses. Be loved. Let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is Love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Wow. I mean, we don't have to guess what this passage is about. A repetition to the rescue. Fifteen times in that short passage, love. So let's spend a couple of minutes here. Notice how John starts. Here's one of John's favorite designations for the church. Beloved. He does it also in verse 11. Beloved, loved ones, those that are loved by me, more importantly, those that are loved by God. And that's what we see in the rest of verse 7. Love is from 
God. So if you love, in this sense, the true nature of love, then you have been born of God and you know God. Love is the primary characteristic of God's people. Love is what characterizes God's people because, verse 8, God is love. Love is what characterizes God. We don't have time to do the long, here's what the world thinks love is, here's what the Bible says it is, comparison and, and contrast. But briefly, for the world, love today means little more than affirmation and acceptance. You love me if you affirm me and accept me in all that I am and everything that I do. That's not love. For the world, love today also means little more than some sort of positive emotional feeling based upon the recognition of something desirable. It was love at first sight. No, it wasn't. Uh, that's not love. Maybe attraction at first sight. Maybe lust at first sight. But again, that's not love. So love is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not unconditional acceptance and affirmation. None of that is what we are talking about when we read that God is love and thus God's people are to love. So set all that baggage aside. Well, what is it then? Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. All right, this, this is helpful. He's going to tell us. He's going to tell us what it is. In this thing, God's love is shown, revealed, demonstrated. Here's what love is revealed by what love does, which is what? God sent his only son into the world. Sound familiar? Same author, again, most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And remember, that's not referring to the quantity of God's affection. God is, John is not saying God loved the world so, 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 so much that he did this thing. No, he's saying God so loved the world, meaning God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son. Same thing as 4-9 here. Keep moving. Look at verse 10. Tell me more about this love. How is God's love demonstrated in the sending of his son? Hold that thought because John makes an important point first. What is primary? What, whose love comes first? What's the order of operations here? Verse 10. In this is love. Let me clarify, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Peek down at verse 19 where he makes this very clear. We love because he first loved us. Right, so God's love is primary. God's love is always first. The order of operations of the gospel is always God first. He calls, we respond. He initiates, we receive. God acts first. He loves his people before they were lovable in any way. He loves his people while they hated him. He pursued his people while they ran from him. He first loved us. Okay, that clarified. Now we're trying to sort out how he loved us. Back to verse 10. Second part. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. Notice what it does. It does something. It acts. It doesn't just affirm and accept. It rescues and redeems. Biblically, love best illustrated by God's sending of his son is to actively seek the good of the loved. God loved his people, and so he did something for his people. He acted for the good of his people. Love seeks and serves the good of another. Love puts the needs of the other before your own. To love is to do intentional good to another. And so when Christ commands love, 
this is what he means. Right, so it's not love undefined, and it's not love undirected. He says specifically, love one another. Right, so Christians love each other because God has first loved them. And they love each other by seeking the good of each other and serving each other. This is simply what characterizes a Christian. This is fundamental to the Christian life, this other-oriented, good-seeking service. Christians seek the good of other Christians. That's love. And then don't miss what Jesus says back in John 13, 35. Hold your finger in 1 John, because we'll be right back to 1 John. Listen again to John 13, 35. He's commanded to love. Now he gives a reason. He, he gives some explanation. By this, by this love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. See, Jesus says that love is evidence of discipleship. Love is evidence of relationship. Love reveals life. Love for others reveals loved by God. And this is, this is really big, guys. Jesus is saying that if you are not characterized by this, people will not know that you are his disciples. Why not? Well, it's probably because you aren't his disciple. Because such a complete lack of love for others must reveal a complete lack of having first been loved by God. God's love makes God's people loving. This is that simple. God's love makes God's people loving. Back to 1 John. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's the same thing. Right? Here's one of the ways that you know. Here's how you know that you have life. Because you love the brothers. Therefore, if you do not love the brothers, and that includes the sisters, and not biological brothers and sisters, but spiritual brothers and sisters, the church, if you do not love the church, John is saying, you do not have life. So again, let's be clear here, because this is a serious warning and caution that we should all of us heed. Christians are characterized by love for other Christians. I mean, this is one of the main things that kind of mid-college that God started to use to reveal to me that I, didn't, I wasn't quite who I thought that I was. I thought that I was really cool and missional because I didn't waste my time hanging out with Christians I only had non-Christians and became a lot like uh, those non-Christians because I was a non-Christian. I had no love and affection for the people of God and for the church. And God used 1 John to, in this to start to reveal to me that maybe I didn't actually believe the things that I said that I believed. Christians are characterized by love for other Christians. That's just the plain teaching of God's word. Therefore, if you are not characterized by love for other Christians, you have no ground on which to actually believe that you are a Christian. Look at chapter 4, verse 20 of 1 John. John keeps going. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Verse 21, and this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot love God. You cannot 
claim to love God and hate your brother, or even just have nothing to do with your brother. That apathy is still hate. Remember, you, you cannot tell me, hey, Matt, brother, you know, I really, really love you, but I, I just can't stand your wife, right? Now, again, we know that's an entirely ridiculous hypothetical. No one in the last 12 years has ever liked me and not my wife. Uh, the opposite is a very regular reality. Um, I mentioned last week that I'm the reacher in my relationship, so lots of people, I'm sure, are thinking, Melissa, I really love you, but I just can't stand your husband. But guess what? You can't do that either. Why? Because we're one. By the grace of God, I get to be one with her. You cannot hate her and be all right with me because she is my bride. And you cannot say that you are all right with Jesus and dislike his church because she is his bride. Ephesians 2.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's how you're supposed to love your wives, by the way. You lay down your life for your wife. Christ loves his church. He loves his bride. You are going to dare say that you love him and hate his bride or want nothing to do with his bride? He loved her so much that he gave himself up for her. Verse 23, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. We, the church, are the body of Christ. You cannot love the head and hate the body. That makes no sense. And you cannot love Christ and claim to know Christ and not love that which is so precious to him. I love all kinds of things now that I never thought I would love uh, because my wife loves them. Uh, just because I love her. All the things that I never cared about before that all of a sudden I care about because I love her. You cannot love Christ and not love the same things that Christ loves. You cannot know him and not know and be intimately connected with that which is so precious to him, his very own body. He died for these people. Be very careful about hating or even distancing yourself from that which Christ loved so much that he gave his life for it. So I mean, all of us should be asking ourselves honestly, do we love the church? Do you delight and that which the one you claim to follow most delights in. Do you love the people that Christ so loved that he gave himself for them? This is foundational to everything else. Christ commands love. But we got to keep moving. Point number two. Don't worry. The first is the longest. Number two. Christ commands love as he loves. Go back to John 13, page 900. We haven't sorted this part out yet. We've seen that love is a command. But look at how Jesus describes the command. Look at the adjective. A new commandment I give to you. Wait a second. How is this new? Uh, to many people, that's an easy question because they, again, entirely misunderstand the law. So they'll just say, uh, old, law, bad, new, love, good, no, bad, wrong. That cannot be how a Christian thinks of God's law because Scripture tells us how to think of God's law. And it is good. The very first Psalm, Psalm 1, all about blessing. Who receives blessing from the Lord? The one who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The longest Psalm, Psalm 119, is like an entire love song to the law. Verse 97 is sort of the theme. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all 
today. Paul, who many will try to say teaches us something different about the law, himself says in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and righteous and good. And he's just following Jesus, who teaches very clearly in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to do away with the law in any way, but to fulfill the law. And then when one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, comes to Jesus in Matthew 22 and asks him, hey, what's the great commandment of the law? How does Jesus answer? This is profound. What about the law? What's it about? Verse 37, Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And guys, that's huge. Jesus there quotes two spots from the Old Testament, two spots from the law to help us understand that the law is and always has been all about love. The law is summarized by love. The law commands love. Love and law go together. I give law to my daughters because I love them. And when I am being a good father, which is, I hope, at least some of the time, I give them those laws and those rules for their good, uh, to pursue their good, to protect them. Sitting in on a tablet all day is not good. And so the law is 30 minutes a day of technology time if you finished your school and if the basement is clean. Right? We limit their technology because too much of that is bad for their brains. I like technology. Technology is good. I'm not trying to spoil their fun. I'm trying to promote their good. Less technology, more books. And so I give them good laws. Listen, I'm not even that great of a father. God is the perfect father. And he does that infinitely better than I do. So every, I'm sure I have some arbitrary and ridiculous laws in my home. But everything God commands is for our good. There is nothing arbitrary. And there is nothing ridiculous. His law, as a reflection of his perfect character, as a revelation of who he is, and remember, he is good and he is love, therefore, that law which reflects that must only promote that which is good and love. Law is good. Law is for and about love. Right? But we haven't yet answered our question. If the command to love comes from all the way back in the book of Leviticus, about 1,400 years before Jesus is speaking here in John 13, um, John 13, then how can Jesus in any way say that this command is new? I've just said that the law has commanded this all along. So how is this a new command? Well, he tells us. He explains. He says, love one another. That's the same. That's the law. That's Leviticus. Just as I have loved you. Uh, there's, there's the newness. Uh, there's the uh, expounding upon this law. Jesus commands love just as he has loved. And how has he done that? Well, we've already seen it. In 1 John, John 3.16, in Ephesians 5, he gave himself up for us. He was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Well, remember, we've defined love as the active seeking of the good of another. You know, sometimes the good that we need is a small thing. We just need a friendly listening ear. We need the blessing of a meal. We need a babysitter uh, to get a night out. Uh, was that passive aggressive? No, we don't. I'm just saying, like, little things sometimes. But what about our ultimate good? What is it that we really need? Well, that verse gives us a hint. 
It must have something to do with sin. And propitiation is just a fancy word that means a, a turning away of wrath, a turning away of wrath. Why, though, would wrath need to be dealt with? Why, Romans 1, is God's wrath revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Why does sin get wrath, which is ultimately death? Why, Romans 6, is the wages of sin death? Well, it's pretty simply, it's because of who God is. He, he is the perfect being. He is life itself. He is perfectly holy and righteous and good. And sin, as a rejection of him and as a rebellion against him, necessarily then separates you from the God who is goodness and life. And again, what happens when you separate yourself from life? Obviously, you get death. And since God is perfectly just, he must punish sin. And we all know this. We get this. We want crimes to be punished. We want murderers to pay. We want there to be justice. The problem is, in this case, we are the murderers. We must pay. That's the bad news. But the gospel, the good news, is that God himself, the just and righteous judge, is also the gracious and merciful redeemer. God himself made a way for our sin problem to be dealt with. And since sin is the ultimate bad, that sin problem being dealt with is the ultimate good. And that's why Christ has come to do good ultimately for his people by dying for his people. The wages of sin is death. God sent his son into the world to take our place and to die that death for us. And in so doing, by paying that debt that we justly owed, he turns away, he absorbs in himself and turns away God's right and righteous anger at our sin. Jesus takes all of that for us so that we may be forgiven and live. That's love. He gave himself up for us. And that's what's new about the commandment. We are to love in that way. We are to love like he has loved us. We are self-sacrificially to serve one another by laying down our lives, often metaphorically, maybe sometimes literally, to seek and serve the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love as Christ loves. And ultimately, he loves us to death, literally, through death. Why? And we know because of our sin, but why does he actually come? Why does he actually come for wretched sinners like us and give up everything for us and suffer the unimaginable and indescribable wrath of God to save us from that sin? Because of point number three. It's because of covenant. Christ loves through covenant. I won't linger too long here because this is what we focused on the last two weeks. Here's the connection to what we've been doing. Remember, a covenant basically is like a divine contract. A covenant is how God relates to people always. God only relates to people through covenant. Everyone alive is in some sort of covenant relationship with God. You are either in and under the covenant of works. Remember, which says do this and live. Obey me perfectly, be perfectly righteous to be with me. Trouble, uh, you're not, I'm not. And remember what God told Adam, the day you disobey me, you will die. That's the covenant of works. Or you're either in that 
or you are in and under the covenant of grace, where Christ has come in and done all of that for you. He lived for you, and he died for you, so fulfilling the covenant of works so that you could live. Where the covenant of works says, obey me and live. Remember, that's why every religion in the world says, do this. Here are the things that you have to do to be right with God. Because deep down inside of us, we all know that we owe God our righteousness and our obedience. The problem is we can't do it. The covenant of works says, obey me and live. The covenant of grace says, trust me and live. Trust that I made a way for your sin to be dealt with and for you to be with me in uh, and through the work of Christ in your place. So you are either related to God through the covenant of works, you better be perfectly good, bad news, you're not, or you are related to God through the covenant of grace. Christ has perfectly fulfilled that covenant of works for you so that you could be with God. Because remember, that's what covenant is all about. Covenant is about relationship. Remember the covenant formula. What was the covenant? I'm confused. Remember what God says over and over and over again. I will be your God and you will be my people. How? It's covenant. And so we saw two weeks ago, God makes this promise to Abram that he himself would be Abram's very great reward. The reward is relationship with God. And then we saw last week how God was going to do that when he entered into and cut a covenant with Abram. All of that ultimately pointing forward to what Christ was going to come and do. Christ came because of the covenant. Christ came because, as we saw last week, God himself guaranteed that the covenant would be kept, and it was in Christ. And so we talk a lot about having a personal relationship with God. We talk a lot about the death of Christ on the cross, but we don't talk a lot about covenant. But that is how and why both of these things happen. After the sermon, we've got the stuff here. We're going we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in Luke 22, moments before Jesus will be betrayed, hours before he will be strung up on a cross, he explains to us what he is really doing and why when he gives us the bread representing his body and then the cup representing what? We say the blood, yes, but why? The blood of what? He tells us. Verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, it is by his death that Jesus is instituting and cutting this new covenant with us, setting us free from the old covenant, setting us free from the obligation of the covenant of works. Everything Jesus is doing is for covenant relationship. He is entering into covenant relationship with his people, and he is doing it because of the covenant we saw God promise to Abram uh, last week. He is doing it uh, because God has guaranteed that covenant, which then means point number four, that what Christ is really doing is that Christ is committing through covenant. This is the form that God's love takes. This is how God's love is expressed. This is how it is formalized. Covenant is commitment. I will be your God and you will be my people. Remember last week we saw 
God symbolically demonstrate that to us through the very graphic covenant ceremony. Remember how you would do a covenant ceremony thousands of years ago. You would take a bunch of animals, you would cut them in two, you would lay them across uh, from each other in a line with a sort of path in between them, and the parties would then enter into a covenant with one another by passing through the cut animals, and in, do and in doing so, they were in effect saying, may what was done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep this covenant. May I be torn in pieces like these animals if I fail to keep this covenant. Then what happened? God himself passed through the animals. God himself guaranteeing the covenant. God committing himself to Abram and to Abram's offspring and Christ in cutting the covenant with his people through the shedding of his own blood is fulfilling that promise and is then also committing himself eternally to his people. I was torn in pieces for you because you failed to keep the covenant, but I have kept it. I am faithful. I am loving. Self-sacrificial, other-serving, loving. I am that committed. Committed to death. You see, it is through covenant that God eternally commits himself to his people. From the beginning, God has been creating a people to be in relationship with him. We ruined the relationship. But then right away, we saw God begin the work of restoring the relationship. And he did it through covenant. Covenant is about relationship. It is about love. And covenant is about God's commitment to his people. Which means then, point number five, that Christians too commit through covenant. All of that was hopefully for this payoff. All of that was to get to this. Let me summarize. Christ commands, Christi Christ commands Christians to love one another just as he has loved us. He has loved us by serving us through his death, and he has done so both because of and for covenant. That covenant which is an unbreakable, never-ending commitment to us. Therefore, if... We are going to love one another like that, which we've just seen we are commanded to do. Then we will commit ourselves to one another through covenant. And that's what we call church membership. Church membership is the covenant commitment of an individual to a specific body of believers. And it's just, it's everywhere. In Scripture, people always say, where's, where's the word covenant? Where's the word membership in Scripture? It's not there. I know that. Trinity is not there either, right? We, we know that. But the Trinity is obviously still there. Uh, I've just given you a somewhat unique argument for it. Well, let me run through a couple of the more common arguments. If you do a chronological Bible reading plan, you've probably either quit or just finished up the book of Numbers. Do you know why it's called the book of Numbers? Yep. Lots of numbers. Uh, people say Leviticus is a hard read. I think Numbers is far more difficult. But in Numbers, we see the wonderful truth that God counts his people. There is a clear in and a clear out. That's what Leviticus is all about. That's why Numbers comes after Leviticus. Leviticus sets the lines of demarcation for who are God's people and who are not, who is in and who is out. And then in Numbers, he counts them. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. In 115, we see that there are 120 of them gathered together. 
But then in chapter 2, Peter preaches his first sermon. I'm still waiting for my Acts 2 sermon moment. Uh, but the people are cut to the heart and they cry out to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter answers, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Why be baptized? Because that was the marker. Like that was the or- Baptism is the ordinance of of entrance. Baptism is how you became a member of the church. It set you apart. It marked you as in. And so verse 41 says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God counts and God marks off those who are his. Next week, Pastor Mike is preaching on church discipline. Some of you don't like me right now teaching on uh, church membership. Just wait until next week. Um, I gave Mike the hard one on purpose. Here you go, Mike. You do that. Um, But Mike, in the course of that sermon, I'm sure will mention 1 Corinthians 5, where in the case of a horrible sin, Paul commands the church, hey, let him who has done this thing be removed from you. Listen, there, there can't be an out unless there is an in. You can't remove someone unless you have somehow first included someone. Paul's command there assumes church membership. And then later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, when maybe he's referencing the same uh, situation, I'm not sure, uh, Paul tells them to welcome the brother back in. Why? Because he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Majority. That's a very Baptist word, right? That's, that's a counting. That's a numbers word. A majority requires a membership. And I could keep going through Scripture. But the point is, is that church membership is very much in the Bible, and it is assumed from beginning to end. And I believe that it is commanded from beginning to end. All I want you to see is that Christians committing to one another through the covenant of church membership is the logical result of God's committing himself to Christians through the covenant in Christ's blood. We are commanded to love one another. And for that to flourish, it must first be couched in commitment to one another. Listen, that's what the covenant is for. That's what church membership is for. Back to cohabitation at the beginning. People aren't getting married because they want the benefits without the responsibility. But what they're finding, ironically, is that it doesn't work. Because as it turns out, the true benefits are in part a direct result of the responsibility. Because there cannot be true love without there first being true commitment. This is the nature of love because this is how God loves us. He commits himself to us And then he binds himself to us in covenant and he faithfully acts for our good. That's what we are called to do for one another. And what I'm trying to argue is that you cannot really do that without the covenant of membership. Had I gone to Melissa 11 years ago and said, hey, listen, baby, I I really, really do love you. Believe me. But, you know, I want to keep my options open. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you five out of seven nights. That's pretty good. That's a majority, but I'd like to keep these other two nights to to keep my options open, you know. You you never know, for for other women maybe. But don't worry, I love you. Five out of seven nights, that's pretty good. Should have walked out and never looked back, because that's not love. And these men convincing women to live with them so that they can get all the benefits without committing themselves to them. Ladies, that's not love. 
And it's no wonder that things tend to fall apart. Love needs commitment to flourish. Commitment is the environment in which love can grow. True love is commitment. And so you, as Christians, are commanded to love one another. And what I'm arguing is that you can only truly do that by committing yourself to others through the covenant of church membership. Hebrews 10.24 And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Have you ever considered that church membership is one of the main ways that we do that? So we're not just joining a club. We're not paying our dues to Costco so that we can get the benefit of all those glorious bulk goods for low, low prices. Um, the blink over here, I, got, I hurt myself and couldn't go for a month. They don't care. They're still, it's better for them. They're getting my money, and I'm not taking up space. They love for me to pay dues and be a member and not come. Right? So the, the membership, we're not talking about what everyone else is talking about when we talk about membership. We are not consuming for our own benefit. We are committing in part for the benefit of others. Listen, it's a beautiful thing. I, I'll be completely honest. That I didn't know anything about love until I found myself yoked to my wife in the covenant of marriage. But... I stood before the Lord and about 300 people and made promises to her, and I take those promises seriously. I committed myself to her. I entered into a covenant with her. And do you know what has happened? I think, I guess you can ask her, but by the grace of God, our love has only grown. We are both of us uh, much better off now than we were 10 years ago, me more so than her. But all that is due in large part to the commitment that we made to each other. You see, what's going on today with people putting off marriage and not getting married, it's, it's I want all the feelings and I'm worried that the marriage will... You know. No, it's actually the commitment that makes all that flourish and grow and makes it safe and it makes it secure. Right? We made a commitment to each other. And church membership is similar. Remember God's covenant formula. It's the same for us. Here's what we're saying. I will be yours, and you will be mine. I am committing myself to you to seek your good through thick and thin. I am uniting myself to you and promising that I will do whatever I can to love you as Christ has wonderfully loved me. I will seek your good as Christ has sought mine. Listen, yes, you will benefit from church membership. Yes, it is good for you, but it's about love. This other-oriented, good-seeking love that we have been talking about. Christians are commanded to love like that because that's how our God has loved us. And that has to involve commitment. I want you to consider that maybe, just maybe, church membership is how you can best do that. As I know there are a thousand more questions. I'll tackle some of those in two weeks when we come back. We're going to look specifically at our church covenant, and we're going to look at what it means to be a member of the church. How do Christians relate to one another? What are our expectations? What are we committing to when we enter into church membership? We'll do that in two weeks. If you have questions now, find me after the service, and I would love to answer those questions. But God enters into covenant with his people, and he commits himself through covenant to his people. His people then enter into covenant with other people and commit themselves through covenant to other people. That's what church membership is. And it's all about 
relationship. And it's all about loving one another as God has so loved us in Christ by eternally committing himself to us. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant that we are reflecting. That's what we want to do for one another because that's what God has done for us. If you would, bow with me and let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and kind and merciful. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. We thank you that it was while we were yet sinners that you entered into and initiated a covenant relationship with us when we did not deserve it, when we did not seek it, when we did, in fact, the exact opposite. We thank you for your initiating and saving grace. We thank you for your committing grace. Father, our only hope is the security and the stability that we have in the commitment that you have made to us in Christ. It's because of that that there is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is because of that that there is nothing that can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, that commitment is what gives us assurance. That commitment is what gives us hope and security and joy. Father, I pray that we would delight in you, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. Father, I pray that we would reflect you more and more here as a church as we seek to better understand what it really means to be a church. Father, it's not the term membership that matters. It's not, Father, we want to do what you have commanded us to do. Father, and you call us a family. You call us a body. You call us a temple. Father, unite us together as your family. Father, I pray that we would love one another just as Christ has loved us. Father, when we confess that we fall so short of that standard. And so we ask that you would help us. Help us to commit to one another. Help us to put the needs of one another before our own. Father, make us a church that by your grace wonderfully uh, reflects your love to each other and to the watching world. And we ask where we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.